This is No Love Live with Pastor Tim Warholic. Tim is the senior pastor of Paradise Calvary Chapel in Las Vegas, Nevada. So for the future, uh, Sunday evenings as we go through, I want to be able to, to hear from you guys, okay? So I want you to be bold when the Lord puts it on your heart to share something, and I want you to come tell me, hey, the Lord's given me something to share. I want to talk with you a little bit about it. Next week, um, Steve Steckler's sharing with us. He doesn't know that yet, but he just found out. And then the week after, <laughs> yeah, voluntold. Is that cool, man? Oh, all right. I forgive you. No. <laughs> Here, you already said you'd be willing. That's why I said that. All right. I'm putting you on the spot. So next week's open. Whoever wants to share a little something from the Lord. I want to share, you know, I want to, be, again, like I said, I want to be open. And this is a, a psalm that the Lord kind of brought to my mind while we were singing a worship song, and, and I turned to it and read it, and I just want to read it. No, no exposition. Just, I just want to read it to you, see what the Lord has for us. Psalm 62. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and we'll have somebody run one to you if you need a Bible. If not, Psalm 62. Truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock in my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will you attack a man? You shall be slain, all of you, like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. Do not trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy, for you render to each one according to his work. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to Revelation chapter 1. Father, we thank you so much for this evening that we can come sit at your feet And while all the world is busy and vanity triumphs, we can just stop and quiet our souls and listen to your voice. Hear what you have to say. You can speak to us any day. You could speak to us any time. We know that you speak to us through your word, which is why we gathered here together tonight to look at it. We have an expectation 
that you're going to speak to us tonight. We have an expectation that you're going to continue to lead us in righteousness. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. And we want to be your delightful children. So instruct us, we pray. Teach us. Give us that direction we could be confident in stepping out in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The seven churches, church number one, is the church in Ephesus. Something that we need to consider as we start the seven churches, which we start tonight, is that God is fully aware of what is happening in the church. I like this whole theme lately we've had going of capitals and lower cases. You have the capital C church, and then you have the lowercase C church. What's the lowercase C church? It's a religious institution, maybe a community organization, but the capital C church is representatives of God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And this is what he says. He said last week, I am the one who walks amongst the seven lampstands. What's the seven lampstands, church? The seven churches. He says, I have in my hand the seven stars, the spirit of the seven churches or the angels or the representatives of the seven churches. And he says, I want you guys to understand. I want you to know something. I know what's going on. And sometimes we can deceive ourselves into thinking that God doesn't see everything that's happening in our lives. And this could go for us as individuals or it can go to a church that that wants to be sanctified and set apart for the purposes of God. But there's stuff happening inside that's filthy and nasty. And God says, I can't use you guys because of this stuff that's happening inside. And he's going to address it tonight. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But the reason that I'm saying this is to say, God knows what's going on. There's no reason to act like it's not there. There's no reason to try to hide it. My son's at this interesting point in his life. He's, he's almost a teenager, and he's, he's gotten to this point where he's really good at redirecting or just not answering a question altogether. Hey, why are you doing this? Well, I had a good day at school yesterday. I'm like, whoa, that's an indicator something's going on. Or, hey, hey, uh, why'd you say that? Well, you know, I said, what? I don't remember even talking at all. You were just talking. Or like today, you know, hey, did you do that homework that you were supposed to do that we talked about you doing? Well, no, because I was on my computer. Well, what were you doing on your computer? I was, I was on my computer. Yeah, we've already established that what we, you know, because he knows, you know. And I don't mean to pick on him. If he was here, the, he's got a heart of gold and he would chuckle with you. And he'd give me a hug afterwards and say, sorry, dad, for, for messing you around like that. That's the kind of kid he is. So I am careful of that, but he's not here tonight, so I can say whatever I want. (laughs) He's got a heart of gold. But I need him to be aware that that I understand stuff that he's going through in life, that he can come talk to me. But most importantly, that I need him to be able to respond to correction that I have for him in his life. You know what the number one uh, reason for for Kids in America who are struggling or going to prison, the number one reason statistically across the board is these kids, especially young boys, who have no father figure in their life. They've got no father figure. And over and over again, you can look at the studies and you can look at the stats and and no man will step up and take responsibility for this precious little child 
that needs somebody to give a little bit of discipline, to give a little bit of correction. It's good. It's healthy. The Bible says to us, what father loves his children yet does not discipline them? It's an oxymoron. If a father loves his children, he will discipline them. That's why we have to come to this text, starting with the church in Ephesus. Come to this text, looking at the seven churches of Revelation, and say, God, I am the first person that I want you to address today. Not my enemies, not my pet theologies, not these people over here, not these people over there, not these things that I think that I'm justified in doing, but where do I need to hear from you? How can you correct me so that I'm in a place that, that's, that's healthier spiritually, that's growing spiritually, and that's moving forward and not stagnation or moving backwards? That's where I want to be. I don't want to grow stagnant. I've seen it happen over and over again. How many of you have ever gone in for a review at, at your work? You go in for a review and there's a few ways that you can, that, that you can prepare yourself to go into a, a, a review. How do you feel? Nervous? Anxious? Scared? Those are usually the main three. How about confidence? Yeah, I'm going into this review. I've done, I've busted my booty. I've done the best I can, and and I want to hear what they have to say. Nine times out of ten, I think that most people are afraid of what that review is going to look like. And there's four responses, and it's not limited to this, but there's four responses that I kind of process through just over life and my reviews that I've had and people that I've talked to because the first, one of the first people that, that, that people want to talk to when they get a review at work, especially a bad review, is first their, their spouse and then their pastor on the, on the second phone call. Can you believe what this Satan worshiper at work said about me? Are you sure he's a Satan worshiper? He must be. He gave me a bad review. Okay, hold on. Four ways that people respond. Number one, upset. I can't believe that. I don't know how productive that is. They're definitely over you. They're an employer. Number two is defensive. Well, I don't know why they'd have to say that about me. I've never done that before. And, and I, I've, been, I've been a person of character in that position. And I've, and I've trailblazed the way for them to be a better company in this regard. You know how it is. Defensiveness, withdrawing. Number three I have is, is crushed. Oh, man. I can't believe I fail. I'm such a loser. I don't even know why I have this job. I don't even know why I work. I'm going to stay home tomorrow. I'm going to sleep all day. And I'm not going to be accountable to anybody but myself from now on. That's a valid response people go through. And then lastly, the thing that I think is the most important and the place I want to be for myself is, is a big one. And we see this throughout the New Testament. It's a big one, and it's called being teachable. It's teachable. It's having yourself in such a position that when somebody corrects you, instructs you, rebukes you, or does something to you, instead of getting defensive, instead of getting upset, instead of getting mad, you say, okay, I want to I wanna, I wanna hear what you're saying. I, I don't necessarily agree with you yet. I, I need to do a little introspection. I want to make sure that what you're saying is true. And if this is a right representation of my character, then I don't want to be like that anymore. I want to change. I want to be taught. 
when I was being trained in ministry, getting ready to go into ministry as a pastor, I was doing an internship under the director of Eastern European Missions in, in, in Hungary. And this is one of the things that he said to me. He said, whenever you encounter somebody in ministry that serves with you, when they get to the point where they're no longer teachable, you will no longer have any kind of an impact in that person's life. When they become unteachable, when they become defensive, when they push back, when they're upset, you can try. Now, I don't know how much of an absolute he meant that to be, but in my experience, whenever somebody's gotten to that point where you've gone through a lot together, you've struggled, you've seen your ups and downs, and, and, and you've, a ton of stuff has transpired and happened, but the moment that they harden their heart and they say no, I'm not going to change. I'm not going to be moved. That's the point when that person becomes, quote, unteachable. And it's very hard to have any influence in their life anymore. And I've seen it come to pass over and over again. So the reason for the workplace illustration is this, because I want you to do well in your jobs. Um, yeah, I do. I want God to develop character in you. I want him to use your jobs to do that or your place in the world, whatever that looks like. I want that to be a part, but, but a greater part. If this is how we respond to people in the world, how do we respond to God? When he says to us, Tim, this is something you gotta work on, man. Tim, this is something that you need to be corrected about. Tim, this is something that I see in you that needs to be addressed. And I found that all four of those things can take place. I can be upset at the Lord. I can say, you know, you've thrown a lot of stuff my way lately. It doesn't seem too fair, Lord. So you're asking a lot of me. And, and maybe we should reevaluate who's in the right or wrong here. Why don't you take some of those back? Or defensiveness. You know, God, I wouldn't have responded like that if it wasn't for this or that or this person that you should have got rid of a long time ago. Don't forget that that's, that's the place that you placed yourself in, okay? I, I tend to be more of the Eeyore. I've told you guys that before, you know, the crushed spirit. Fine, God, I'm not worth anything anyway. Might as well just go home and go to sleep. One of my favorite pity party routines. I think I'm going to take a nap. <laughs> just tune everything out. But the thing that's going to benefit us the most is if we come before the Lord and say, God, you, you know us. You know us as a church. You know us as individuals. You walk through and you take an account and you look at our lives and you give us instruction. I want to learn. I want to grow. I don't want to be the same person I was yesterday. Somebody gave me a comment a few weeks ago. It doesn't happen very often. And they said, you know, I just want to talk to you for a second, Pastor Tim. Uh, they, they've been here for, I don't know, they've been attending fellowship with us here for probably three years or something like that. Long time, the majority of the time. And they said, I just wanted to tell you how much that, that we, a couple of us, have noticed that you've grown. And I was just like, man, it's so nice. Because we don't ever, you know, we don't often see it. Like, like I mentioned, you, you go to the door frame and you mark off the heights because you don't remember how, old, how tall you were last year. You just remember how old you were, but, but you don't remember. You can't really see how much you've grown. And, and is, is it arrogant or prideful to say that, that I want to grow up? 
I want to mature spiritually. I want to be more of, of a, a mouthpiece of God today than I was yesterday. I hope so. Because if I'm not going in that direction, what in the world am I doing? What in the world am I doing? And it's not even for you guys. It's not even for our church or the fellowship. It's out there. If I don't know how to deal with them, then what's the point? And this is the heart. This is the, the flesh and blown, bones that it gets down to with, with the church in Ephesus. They've reached a place of stagnation now at this point. They've been through a lot. This is the church that Priscilla and Aquila probably founded. This is the church that was, that was uh, discipled by the Apostle Paul. This is the church that, that Paul sent Timothy to. This is the church that the Apostle John, Jesus' best friend, went and pastored over them for a time. This is a cool congregation. This is a cool fellowship. This is a place that I would want to go hang out if I was in the early first century church. And this is the first church that's addressed for a few reasons. I think first and foremost, because if the gospel had started in Asia, in this area, and primarily in Ephesus, then what better place to start the correction? So you have this region. If you look at a map and you look at the seven churches of Revelation, which are the present day uh, area of Turkey, you'll see that Ephesus was a port city that connected all of these little cities that he talks about in these seven churches, connected them all together. So if you wanted to go to any of them, most likely you went through Ephesus first. You poured it in, and then you went to the next one, and the next one, and the next one, whatever. Here's the heart of the issue. Anything that, that was influencing or, or moving in the churches of Asia Minor at that time, Anything or most things probably came from or started in Ephesus and, and went out from there. It was the heart of industry of the region. It was the heart of where the church started to grow from and out. It, and it really was the first one that needed to be addressed and said, hey, wait, listen, you guys, these are some things that, that you need to consider and take heed of. So without further ado, let's look at my second favorite church, the Church of Ephesus. And it would be my first, but I'm in the Church of Philadelphia, so um, you'll understand when we get there. To the angel of the Church of Ephesus, right? These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. First, Ephesus, a city known to hold one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That's pretty notable, isn't it? The temple of Artemis, or Diana, was there located in Ephesus. And it was so grand, it was so incredible, it was so beautiful that it was identified as one of the seven uh, wonders of the ancient world. 
so much so that the, the, the silversmith there got so upset with the spreading and preaching the gospel that he, that he, he caused a revolt against the people and a, a riot broke out and people were in threat of losing their lives. And the whole city chat, chanted for hour upon hour. We're not talking about minutes. We're talking about they were chanting at the top of their lungs for hours. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians because they felt that the Christians and, and the ground that was moving, the way that God was pouring out his spirit in that city was going to affect their cult religion, which this silversmith was making money from. So in the book of Acts, there's this, this revolt and the gospel continued to go forward, almost encompassing them and continuing to... This is, this is where we're starting. And, and this is where Jesus says... I have the seven stars in my hand. Another, I heard one person at one point say that the seven stars could also represent the seven personalities or personifications of someone's character. It was what made them who they were, and it was that that they were known for. Just like today, churches are known for certain things to the point where they'll even get a label slapped on them. Oh, this is that kind of church. Have you guys ever heard that before? Jesus says, and he identifies his character from the description of him in verses, chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. He takes these words from there and he says, these are the things he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Verse 2, I know your works, your labor, and your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. I know your works, your labor, and your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. The first thing that Jesus says to the church is that he knows their works. I think that this is interesting. I've said this before. You may or may not agree with me. The emphasis, the focus on what the Ephesian church was doing well was their work and their labor and their patience. The first three things that we see. What did we talk about this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 1? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity, all toil under the sun, right? Can we identify, like we talked about this, this morning, small p purpose, big p purpose, can we identify if the, the church in Ephesus, Ephesus was a small p church purpose of God or a, a capital P purpose of God. I would think, I would say from the text that I think that they were, they were a capital P. And this is why. They're commended for their work. They're commended for their labor, their toil. They're working hard. They're doing their due diligence. And, and, and they're also patient in it. There's no burnout. God is just continuing to move in the city. The people are continuing to respond and, and they're working hard, they're laboring, they're patient. And it says that you cannot bear those who are evil. You cannot bear those who are evil. There were people who were popping up in the church who were wolves in sheep's clothing. Acts chapter 19 and 20, Paul does what we see, the, the farewell to the Ephesian elders as he's leaving Ephesus. 
and he calls the Ephesian elders out to him so he doesn't have to go to that city because he doesn't want to be he doesn't want to be swamped and made to stay longer because they loved him. And Paul is telling them that he has to go to Jerusalem, that, that, it's, that it's what he's supposed to do. And they're weeping. And Paul says to them, beware, for savage wolves are going to come in among you. So Paul, in Acts, prophesies to the Ephesian elders that, that wolves are going to come in. And it seems like from this letter that they took it to heart. And they can recognize people who are not, you know, 100%. They were, they were wolves in sheep clo- sheep's clothing. And they were, they were given over to rooting them out and not let, letting them stay. They're, they're hard workers. They were theologically sound. This is really the emphasis. They, they were doctrinally, dogmatically solid. And nobody was going to move them. You're a wolf. Get out of here. And God says, I see your hard work. I see that, you're, that, that you cannot bear with those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. These are those sheep in wolves' clothing, those, those wolves that have come in ravenous wolves. Since it was a port city, there would be many opportunities for itinerant preachers coming through, which was very common in that time. And what they were doing was they were panhandling the word of God. They'd come and say, we got a word from the Lord for you, blah, blah, blah. We would like a speaker's fee. We got a special blessing, a special gift for you, blah, blah, blah. But we need something in return, you know, because the, the, the workman is wage, worthy of his wages. And the instruction was, be careful of these guys. The word apostle there doesn't necessarily designate that we're talking about the 12 apostles that Jesus spoke of, who the church is going to be built on. This word apostle in the Greek literally means, the word apostle means to be sent out. So you do kind of have this itinerant flavor of somebody who is, has been sent out to, to go encourage the churches, go and bless, go and church plant, go and be missionaries, whatever the case may be. So the apostolic ministry isn't some kind of fancified, glorified headpiece ministry in the church. It's one that is just uh, actually the hands and feet of the gospel being sent out. But be careful of these guys. You got to test them. You got to test them? Yeah, test what they say. You know, like the Bereans. Paul's preaching the gospel and people say, hey, listen, we want to see where that says that. Not just this kind of people that say, oh, that's great. That's what the Bible says. Yeah, this is what else. This is another thing that the Bible says. Have you guys heard of this mother of God cult that's kind of taking over the valley right now? Over the past couple of years, they go everywhere. Thank the Lord that I have not run into them personally except for one occasion. And, and Charles will tell you that did not go well because I couldn't stop. Like I couldn't stop talking to the guy. And Charles was like, come on, man, we got to go. But they talk to our college students, and I'm just, I get so frustrated. About a few weeks ago, they approached Grace in Walmart, and they start talking to Grace. And she said, I was getting so fired up that, that I was quoting verses. I said, pulling my Bible out. They didn't want to see my Bible. They didn't want to look at any other verses. They just wanted to talk about the verses that they wanted to talk about because it was benefiting to their agenda. And she, she, she keeps, she's, she's talking to them, and then all of a sudden, they start to back away a little bit, you know. I'm talking to this guy, Charles and I go out for lunch. We're talking to this guy, and, and he starts to share this special revelation of the mother of God. 
And if there's, a mother, if there's a father God, God the Father in heaven, then clearly there has to be a mother God, right? Duh. Everybody knows that. I'm like, that doesn't really make sense. So we're talking to this guy, and at first it's all surfacy. Then we start quoting heavy scripture and going back and forth. And then I start to find out the real deal. You know, Jesus returned in 1972. That's a fact. Everybody knows that. Jesus returned. The resurrection of the dead has already happened. And at the point that he said that, I went Old Testament style and I rended my garments and plucked out my beard. I'm like, if Jesus has come back, I'm in a bad place. This is not good. This is like the number one fulfillment of the New Testament prophecies that I'm looking forward to. And I missed it because I wasn't born yet. (laughs) Woe is me. But I stopped and I said to this guy, listen to me very sternly. I said, listen to me. You are being deceived. He was checking us out at the restaurant. He was cashing us out. There's people waiting on him. Like, you are being deceived. Do not go to these people anymore. And it was like a whole different demeanor came over him. And he stood up straight like a statue. And he had this thing, thing come across his face. And he said, even if I'm wrong, I will never leave the mother of God. And I was like, bro, here's my card, man. Let's get together again soon. You gotta understand what you're doing. You've been deceived. There's wolves that have come in. They've used select scripture. You didn't test it. You didn't test it. And now you're in a very dangerous place. You can be sure that if anybody ever comes and shares the gospel with you or shares the word of God with you, that they've been tested. I don't let anybody come up here and talk to you guys unless I know for sure what they're going to say is of God's spirit, not the spirit of this world or the spirit of man. Because everything that that guy had to say and everything the mother of God people have to say is the spirit of this world. It's all, it's all little P stuff, how it's going to benefit you. It's, it's no good. It's bad business. Because God wants us to understand the big P. And he's commending them. And this is how it's going to go in each one of the letters to these churches. He's going to give them a commendation. And then he's going to move into an exhortation. And then he's going to correct them. He's going to give them a correction. And it doesn't always necessarily happen in that order. But typically, those are the things that he does. But in two of the churches, all he has is good things to say about them. That's Philadelphia. That's the one I'm in. No criticisms. You've tested those that say they're apostles and are not and have found them liars. Listen, if you're a younger believer and you have a question, you run across a article online that's talking about whatever, baloney, shimaloney, you know, this is what you have to do if you're a real Christian. Listen, just ask, test it, test it cross-reference it. Look at the verses that they reference. You know what I find? When you start to get to people who are involved with people who are wolves and and crackpots, all you got to do is say, hey, what Bible verse? And they give you one, go look it up. Most of the time, it doesn't even correlate textually what they're trying, the point they're trying to make. That doesn't make any sense. This is what this means. How? (laughs) The the bride in Revelation is Mother God. That's That's where they get that. Well, where do you get that from? That's the way that it is. Excuse me? So you're the sole interpreter of scriptural authority now? Like, you just get to say, this is what this verse means? No, test it. And nowadays, more than ever, the internet is rampant with baloney. Baloney. 
And for the most part, it's not worth your time. But luckily for you and a blessing for me, I love theology. I love studying and I will answer and talk to you about any question you could have theologically or doctrinally at any time, most of the time, unless I'm sleeping because I'm still upset that I was rejected by somebody. (laughs) Then I'll get over it and we can talk in a day or two. But test it. Ask the Lord also. Test it with the scriptures yourself. Look it up. Ask a brother or sister you're closer to. That's why we have a fellowship that's so close. Come and talk to me. You tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars and you have preserved and have patience. Two times he mentions patience and have labored for my namesake. Again, he's mentioning labored for my namesake and have not become wearied. These, these are good things for them. You know, these are good things. And, and what is the, the kind of the, the crescendo of, of he's, he wants to bless me. You guys are working hard. You're doing good. You're testing and proving what is right and wrong. And you're passionate about it. And you're not growing weary. And you have patience and you labor. All that for my namesake. They weren't just doing it to do it. Listen, church, this is how we know that they were capital P church people because they were doing it for somebody else's sake. When you do it for your own sake, you're a little P person. When you do it for somebody else's sake or you do it for the kingdom's sake, you're capital P. Big picture, big plan. That's what you're submitting yourself to. And he's saying, you you weren't doing these things just for your own benefit. You weren't laboring, toiling just for your own profit. You are doing it for the kingdom of God. You are doing it for my namesake. And this is the primary thing that Jesus will address with each one of the churches. How the churches represent him. And this is the most important thing for us to understand as well. This is not how you represent your Christianity. This isn't about how you represent religion. This is not about how you represent Paradise Calvary Chapel or or American Christianity. It has nothing to do with those things. Please, let's get, get it off the table right now. This is about how you and I and we as a church represent God the Father, represent Jesus Christ. And this is where it gets real when he has to rebuke them. It's going to be linked back that thing that I just said about his representation. Nevertheless, that's not the sentence you want to hear from the boss. <laughs> hey, uh, Jeremy, you're doing a great job. Hard worker. I like it. Root out the liars. You're persistent and patient. Nevertheless, <laughs> but I have this against you. I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Let that sink in a little bit, because we want to read on. You've done all this stuff. You're a hard worker. You're laborious. You're patient, doctrinally, dogmatically correct, theologically sound. But not only has this happened, but I have this against you. I have this against you. You have left your first love. Now, this is a twofold leaving of the first love. 
First and foremost, it has to happen in, in, uh, in the, the sense of relationship that you have with God, meaning that he is no longer the love of your life and you've started to redirect that focus of love and attention to something, someone, or, or something else. That's the first and primary. And as soon as that happens, like a domino effect, if you're not connected to the source, if you're not connected to the vine, able to bear fruit, then what happens is the relationships around you start to suffer. And you're, not, you're no longer able <laughs> or willing, for that matter, to love those around you. And what did Jesus say to the church or to the disciples in John 13, 35? He said, they will know you are my disciples because you love one another. So many of these concepts fit into our mission statement here at Paradise Calvary Chapel. What's our mission statement or our vision statement, church? Know, love, live. First and foremost, John chapter 17, the reason that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins is so that you could know God the Father. That's it. He wants to be reconciled in relationship with you, and he sent his son to do it. That was the purpose. He wants you to know him. He knows you. He wants you to know him. Secondly, once you start to understand who God is, you receive the revelation that he gives you, whether it be by the, the Holy Scriptures or your, your interaction in prayer with him, whatever the case may be, as time goes by, as you know God, you cannot help but passionately love him. As the years go by, it's hard for me. I cry more now like a little baby, more than I ever had in the past. I'd just be sitting there. I was just, it, was, it was Thursday. I'm just sitting there and I get this phone call out of left field and, and I just start crying. I'm like, God, you are so amazing. There is no way this happened because of me. There's no way this happened by chance, by circumstance. And every time it happened, I'm pointed back to, I know who you are. You've revealed yourself to me and you never stopped. You're continuing as long as I continue to seek you. To know him, to love him. And then the second thing is to live. That's what abundant life is. That's the promise of the Holy Spirit and the connection that we have with God. Eternal life beginning that day that you receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and repentant for your sins. To live with God. And the more that you know somebody, the, the more that you love them, and the more willing and you want to live with them. I, I don't want to leave. That's why you get married, right? It's like, hey, we're dating. It's cool. How many of you have ever known somebody who, who were dating and got engaged and then they got married, but they decided to stay with their parents? How many people have you known that have done that? I know one couple, no joke. They were dating, they were engaged, they decided to get married, they got married, but his parents needed some attention, he needed to stay there, her parents needed some help with some things, so she decided to stay there, and they would switch every weekend, they would have sleepovers at each other's houses. I'm, this is no exaggeration. I'm completely serious. You can ask Grace. They would have sleepovers alternating on weekends. No, that's not the way that it's supposed to be. If you know somebody, you love them more, you want to be with them more. That's why you're on the phone. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. I just want to be with you. I want to live with you. I love you so much. Shut up and hang the phone up. We get it. We get it. 
But this is the progression that happened. He's saying, you guys, I have this against you. You started well. And this is the hard part, guys. He said, you started well. You started off in love. But this thing I have against you, you've fallen from that love. You no longer do it. And this is one of the most dangerous things that I can identify when I'm doing marriage counseling between a man and a wife. This always comes up. We're not in love anymore. Okay, well, let's define that. What does that mean? But, but they look, they always look very similar to the church in Ephesus in this letter. What happens is they're hard workers. They've been patient with each other for a long time. They, 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 they want to know the truth. They want to root out the lie. You know, they, they want they to make it work. It's just not going to happen. They're not in love anymore. And what happens is two people in that kind of situation, they slowly just start to drift apart to the point where it's finally time to, to go get counseling and to talk about it. And they're living two completely separate lives. And they're not in love with each other anymore. Well, just because you're not in love with each other anymore doesn't mean that you can't be in love with each other again. This is the precious lesson, the precious marriage lesson that we get to learn from Jesus in Revelation chapter 2. Just because things have gone sideways, just because things aren't the way they were before, it's wrong. It's not okay. It needs to be addressed, but he addresses it. And he says, you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. When, when a married couple starts to operate in relationship with each other based on what they do for each other, it's only a matter of time. Well, I, I agree. This is my list of the things I agreed I'd do in this marriage. And we sat down and we both made lists. And there's his list and here's my list. And this is how this, is how this thing's going to work. It's not going to work like that. It's too hard. And it may work for a while, but it's not going to last for very long. You may be hard workers. You may be laborious. You may be patient. But the true issue that needs to be addressed is that you've strayed. And I like the language that he uses here. He says, remember, therefore, uh, where, from where you have fallen. Uh, that's very descriptive. Because when you're in love with somebody, where are you? Literally, where are you? You're on cloud nine. You are in the sky. You are, life can't get any better when you're in love. They say that there's a chemical reaction in your brain. And when you're truly in love, you're worthless to the rest of the world. <laughs> there was a Disney cartoon that termed it the best that I've ever heard. It's called Twitterpated. You're gone. A chemical reaction. And he's saying, remember the height from which you've fallen. This is where you guys began in your passion and your zeal and your relationship and your knowledge and your love for me. And this is where you are now. I want you to know this is where you are now. And something has to change. Repent and do the first works. Nobody likes that word, the R word, right? Repent. This is, this is key. This is very important. You cannot continue down the road that you started. And no marriage, no relationship is going to be salvaged unless there's a repentance that happens between both parties. This is a requirement. This is a command. He doesn't say, 
gosh, you guys tried really hard. I wish you'd start trying hard again. No, he says, you guys were trying really hard. You were doing really good. But then you fell, and you need to repent. And you need to return and start doing the things you did before. Interesting how all these, whether it's philosophies or programs in the church, or whether it's, it's, it's ideas or philosophies in the world, interesting how many of these kinds of philosophies, they're in Scripture already. And I don't know if they dig them out through this means or it, or it comes out or, or Ecclesiastes chapter one, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. It all just, you know, people figure it out after a time. But, but you guys remember the love dare? You know, the love dare, I, I never read it or I didn't look into it, but, but from what I did see, and I think I saw part of the movie because <clears throat> I was bored or something. And um, it's similar to what happens in Revelation chapter two. What are they instructed to do? They're instructed to repent. They have to, they have to get things right between them. And then the, the love dare is that they, they, what do they do something nice for each other like every single day? They like do one thing. Is that how it goes? You guys ever read it? Anybody? What do they do? They like commit to doing something for the other person. And it's not about what they're going to receive, but it's about what they have to give. This is the same concept here for the church in Ephesus. He's like, you start doing the stuff that you were doing before. And it's the same kind of things with the love dare. What's the most natural things that start from the beginning? Here's some flowers. Here's some chocolates. Here's a back rub. Here's a movie pass or whatever. And it starts out small to where it gets big. And the next thing you know, these two people have what? They've what? What happened? They've fallen in love again. It's beautiful. <laughs> and as we engage in our relationship with God and we say, I'm just not doing the stuff that I was doing before. I'm just not engaging him the way that I was before. I don't want to know him as passionately as I wanted to know him before. And I'm sorry, God, I repent. This is the message that he's given to the church in Ephesus. Seek me and, and you will find me if you search with me for me with all of your hearts. And you can't take repentance out, no matter how uncomfortable it is. It's still there. And you still got to do something. Us men like that. We, we like the, the do. You know, this is what you got to do. Okay, I can do that. This is what you got to do. Go back and do the things that you did before. Practical. Perfect. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Now, the reason there are these repetitions and words and phrases is because these are things that God is very serious about. What were two words in that, in that verse that we just read that were repetitions and that, that God is serious about? One is repent. Repent and do the first works. Another one is works. Yeah, repent, first works, or else I will come to you quickly. And that's interesting. He's not just going to come. This is something that's going to happen swiftly. It's something that needs to be nipped in the bud. I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Again, here's this repentance. Unless you repent, I'll remove your lampstand from its place. What does the lampstand represent according to what Jesus said it represented? the church. 
What were they working for, being diligent in, being patient for at the beginning of the letter when he addresses them? What war was their purpose in doing all of those things? He says that it was for my namesake. You were doing all these things. It was awesome. It was great. And you were doing it for my namesake. But God says, you're not doing these things for my namesake anymore. You've changed, right? And, and the lampstand is that which represents me. So in essence, we're not talking about eternal security or eternal salvation or any of those kinds of things. We're talking about whether I am going to be a correct representation of God today. And I'm not saying that God can, can take and pull his lampstand back and forth. I don't think that's his, his intention. I don't think that that's what he wants to. And in fact, it, I definitely don't see it in the text. It seems much more emphatic. He's going to remove it, meaning it's going to be gone. But, the, but the, the picture is that he's going to remove their representation of himself through them. Because what does a lampstand do? It's a bearer of the light. And Jesus said, you are what? You're the light of the world. You're the light of the world. And if you're not bearing the light, well, if you're not rightly representing God, he doesn't want to be represented by you anymore. He's going to remove the presence or the, the confirmation in your life of of being the capital C church, maybe demoted. I don't want to go too far. I don't want to put anything in the text that's not there, but I do see this, this kind of big C, this is my people, big church, and then there's the lowercase c, like so many, a sea of lowercase c's out there. Believe me, I've seen them. Humanitarian efforts around the world that have the best intentions, but all they're doing, and I know that this sounds bad, but try to listen to the heart of what I'm saying. They're all over the world. I've talked with them. I've served with them. And what they're, all that they're doing is they're feeding somebody so that they're not hungry for a day or two. This is not enough. It's not enough. If we don't feed somebody for the sake of hunger and then feed them spiritually, give them an opportunity to know who their, their father in heaven is, then what, what good is it? It's no good. Big C, little C. Hey, I want you guys, you, you, you did before. You did well. I want you guys to keep doing it. If you don't repent, I'm going to come quickly. I'm going to remove that representation of myself from you. We'll no longer be bearing the light. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. It's pretty much a slam dunk. Most people agree that these Nicolaitans were people who came in and ruled over or placed themselves in some kind of higher authority in the church right out of the gate. Some people believe it's kind of like the priestly system that the Roman Catholic Church set up where there's, there's, a, there's a mediator between God and man again. People aren't able to go directly to God. They got to go to the priest who in turn goes to God and then God talks to the priest and they say 10 Hail Marys or whatever. I'm not mocking them. This is literally what they believe and they are blocked from having a personal relationship with God. They are prohibited from having a personal relationship with God to whatever degree, not the same as the priest has, okay? And, and some believe that these Nicolaitans were this priesthood that was placed in the church that said, yeah, Jesus died for your sins, but this is the prescribed method that you have to go to God. And what does God say about that? I, I want to yell right now so bad because it makes me too. He says, I hate it. I hate 
the deeds of the nick. I hate when somebody comes into your life and says that they are an authority over you and you have to go through them before you get to me. And if anybody says to you, this is how you can identify a cult. If anybody says to you that you have to go through their prescribed methodology and, and do what they say, listen to their prophets and submit to their teachings so that they can get closer to God, they are Nicolaitans. They are trying to rule over the people, have some kind of authority over the people. This is another testing that you can prove and say, this isn't right. This doesn't seem right. Also, they believe now, some people believe that this is what was happening with the itinerant preachers. There's these people coming, trying to place themselves in some kind of authority over the people and saying, hey, you know, we're new here. We're only passing through, but this is what really you guys got to be doing because we're the ones that are really in charge. And God says, you guys hate that, and I hate that too. This I have, but this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I love how God breaks it up, you know? Me, I'm like... Give it to them hard. Nothing good. That's my, that's my program. You know, like, don't tell them anything good they're doing. <laughs> Just rock them. Like, you're a loser. And this is what you're doing wrong. I've gotten better. But God's like, hey, you guys are doing really good over here, but you really stink over here. And, and you're doing pretty good here, too. <laughs> he kind of ends on a positive note. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy. He says, you guys have recognized this. You've identified this. I want to confirm that in you. I want to bless that in you. I want to encourage that. Now, don't forget what I said about repenting or I'm coming quickly to remove your lampstand. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These also are a direct uh, connection or uh, demonstration of the character that was listed as you know, who Jesus Christ is in chapter one, the, the second half of chapter one, as we were going into the letters. So each church has these little snippets of the character of Jesus connected to them. And, and I think it has a twofold meaning. You know, how did he start out with them? He's like, hey, this is him who walks among the seven golden lampstands and has the seven stars in his right hand. And then he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. He, in essence, he might, you know, I'm not, I'm not putting in any words in, in the Lord's mouth, but, but, but he's saying, you know, he could be saying, you guys, uh, you don't think I'm listening. You don't think that I hear what's going on, but I hear it. And he ends with saying, I want you guys to hear this. You who have ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to, this church, to the churches. I don't think anybody knows this better, this concept. Nobody knows this better than parents, teachers, and parents and teachers. Yeah. There was a third one. In one ear, out the other. Oh, I was going to say pastors. Parents, teachers, the three P's of tonight. Who, where's my P takers? The parents, the preachers, teachers. One was a T. You get it. Anyway. <laughs> pastors. It's late. I've been up a long time. In one ear, out the other. Are you even listening to me? 
Do you even hear what I'm saying to you? What, what are you talking about? My kids' favorite word since I can remember, and there's been times I've, able, I've been able to handle it better than others, but my kids' favorite word, whenever I talk to them, the first thing that comes out of them, their mouth, and I know where they got it from. We're not going to bring up any names or any parents who are involved in that, but um, the first word out of their mouth is, what? I could be standing right next to them talking into their ear and saying, you are going to go put some pants on and go clean up the dog poo. And they'll look me in the face and say, what? I didn't hear you. You heard me. And I, I just say, you know, they say, what? I said, I did it about five times today. They're like, what, 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 what? And I'm like, you heard what I said. I'm like, okay. They go do it. <laughs> he who has ears to hear... Let them hear. Don't be a man who go looks or a woman who goes and looks at their face in the mirror and then walks away and, and immediately forgets that they forgot to pop that pimple <laughs> or put that makeup on. They forget what they look like. They didn't address anything that needed to be addressed. They didn't comb their hair. Don't be like that. When you recognize and see something that the Lord is leading you in, what do we look at? Don't get upset. How did the church in Ephesus respond? You know what? We're not happy about this. Don't get upset. Don't get defensive. Well, you know, the reason that we fell from our first love is because you did it. You made us do it. Or the devil made me do it. We'll figure it out one way or the other. Or just that, you know, crushed, woe is me, it's all my fault. I didn't try hard enough. Maybe I won't try at all. But be teachable. Do you want the Lord to speak to you? I want him to speak to you. I want him to speak to me too. Be teachable. Lord, what do you have to say to us? Give me ears to hear, not just to hear something and then to forget it immediately. And look at what he says. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But wait, this letter is to the church in Ephesus, right? Each one of these letters is intended to be compiled for the benefit and well-being of the entire church. And each letter that we look at, we're going to be able to glean and draw from lessons and corrections and exhortations that would apply to us. Like for me, most of the stuff that I'm going to learn from this series is when we get to Philadelphia. You'll see when we get there. But you are going to have to be in a place of saying, it's not just... You're not just the church of Ephesus. You're not just the church of Sardis. You're not just the church of Laodicea. You're not just the church of Smyrna. You're not just the church of Philadelphia. You are representing the, the church as a whole, as an individual, capital C, not lowercase p. You know what I mean? Paradise. It's capital C, how we fit in to the big picture of God's program for us. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. We're running out of time, but, but there's not very many trees that are mentioned in the Bible that were in the Garden of Eden. And we know that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was in the Garden of Eden. That's the tree that Adam and Eve ate from. And we also know that the tree of life was in the garden of Eden. And after they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good, and good, of good and evil, the fiery swords came out and drove them out of the garden to keep them away from the tree of life. Now God says, you who overcome, 
you'll be given the right to eat from the tree of life. Revelation chapter 22 says the tree of life, its leaves will be used as balming ointment for the healing of the nations to bring life to where there was death and corruption. Isn't that a beautiful picture? It's a promise to us when we overcome. Give to eat the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. I'd like to close with this on a, on a more practical note. There's many different opinions about eschatology and, and the way things are going to roll out in the end. I talked a little bit about that last week. There's no reason for us to get dogmatic about things that nobody understands and anybody that says they do, they're fooling themselves. It's just too complex. God wants us to have a certain level of understanding. We don't need to take it to the next level and act like we know more than has, has been revealed to us. There are certain things that have been sealed up, hidden, kept away for a purpose. Let's not act like we know them, okay? So there's different positions. Some people believe that these seven churches were seven distinct periods of time throughout history. And some people say it's uncanny how each one of these churches really fit in with each one of these, these seasons. And then when you get to seven, seven is the number of what? Completion. You get the big picture of the church before Jesus comes back for the church or the world ends or whatever your eschatological position is, right? So whatever the case may be, uh, you look at the church of Ephesus and what would it be in the historical timeline? It'd be the first century church. It's the first one. It'd be how the church started. And it did start and thrive in love. I really wanted to settle down and talk a little bit more about love, but we don't have time tonight. But it really was. That was the, 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 the thing that catapulted them into the world was this, this passionate love that they were experiencing, and they were giving it to others. They were being slaughtered in mass, and they were just loving people and laying their lives down. And people were like, this is nuts. What are you going to do? You want to kill the Christians? No, I want to be a Christian. I don't want to kill a Christian. These people are, are, are immortal in the sense that you're not really killing them. The, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. The church exploded because of the love that the church showed the world in the face, in the midst of persecution. This is radical. This is radical. And whether that's true, you go through each church and, and you connect it to a time, a period in time, that, that could be true. Also, it's talking about, some people believe that it's talking about seven different types of church spirits or, or in this world there could be, which, which I guess is possible too. Or it could be all seven are, are relating to the completion of the church in whole that still speaks to the church. I say all the above. It doesn't matter whether we define or not, if there's a specific one way purpose that God intended for this to be communicated, we see it fit in, in multiple ways. And, and most importantly, we see it fit tonight for us. Just We see it fit for, for me. We see it fit for me. We see it fit for you, for each one of you. I, I believe that there was something in here that we looked at today that the Lord pricked your heart about. I believe it. And, and I want to say to you in closing that as, that as we play these last two songs, we're giving you a little bit extra time. If you've got to go, that's okay. But if we play these last two songs, I want you to address it with the Lord, okay? I want you to talk to him about it. I want you to get on your face, even if it's proverbially, to get on your face and cry out to him and address it and say, I have ears to hear. I have ears to hear, Lord. And then if you have not yet, 
Uh, you can take the elements of communion. You'll have a time to introspect a little bit before we finally close. And then Christina will pray for us. We'll have a little fellowship if you can. If you can't, that's okay. And then um, we'll call it a night, okay? I love you guys. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thanks for coming out. I love Sunday evenings because I'm all fired up still from Sunday morning. I know God is doing good things, and I'm blessed to have you here to be a part.